Welcome back, everybody, to Who's Your Band? Today, I am joined by my co-host, Sean Morton. Hi, Sexy. Hello. Um, sexy. Uh, he, he's feeling good. He got some sleep last night. Uh, it's very rare. Very rare that very I sleep. Very rare. It's very rare. Usually, you can text Sean about 3 o'clock in the morning, and he responds within two minutes. Okay? He is up all the time. I can't believe he slept last night. Uh, hard night. Um, but we are joined today. Today. We, we have two guests with us today. We have from Q104.3 FM in New York, we have uh, disc jockey, Mr. Ian O'Malley. How are you, Ian? Uh, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, man, we're, we're so happy to have you. And one of my friends, uh, he, former New York comic, he's, he's now out in Denver, man. Denver, Colorado. Funny comedian, author of the book, book. Give it up for <laughs> Anthony Kaffer. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. Well, Tell me you didn't have that at that title after a, a hard night at a dispensary. <laughs> Real great one. <laughs> it's actually called Book the Book. Yes, I'm, oh wow, that that clarifies it a lot yeah. more. Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> it's like spaceballs, like you know, book the face man. Uh, yeah. Don't get me started with spaceballs. I've been on podcasts fighting about how shitty that movie is. Best movie ever. Fucking worst movie. I, I want to like it so bad. No, you don't. I, no, you don't. I it, keep trying. We're gonna jam the radar. J get it, and le and let's reference we're in a movie fifty times in a row. It is brutal, but. This this isn't um, the Kevin Goatee podcast. No. This is it, listen, Ian, I'm very happy to have you on the show because I don't know if you've ever watched an episode of this because it's called Who's Your Band? So we like to talk to people about their favorite music, their history, things like that. Okay. However, um, last two weeks episodes, uh, it really came down to last hour ago. So you like music? Yeah, I do. Okay, <laughs> great. That's about it. We we talk no music at all. So I am a music head. Jeff's a music head, and we are Anthony really definitely going is a music to, head. Yeah, we are going to start digging deep this episode. I'm actually excited that we're going to have a, a music podcast actually talking about music for a change this time. <laughs> That's interesting. Well, you know, look, this this much I can tell you guys. Uh, if I hear anything uh, that I hear constantly, it says, you know, when are you going to write the book? When are you going to write the book? Where is the book? Because uh, generally, what I do is I, I post what I call my stories anything long form on Facebook. Um, and I actually had somebody from a publishing house call me and they'd gotten a hold of some of my stories and adventures that I sometimes I call them adventures as well. Uh, and, you know, they said, can you do me a favor and can you kind of whittle down the best of the best that you have? And then, you know, get back to me and I still have to get back to this person. And uh, I stopped at 150. Wow. Uh, but the stuff that I felt was truly worthwhile to talk about. You know, it, it was it was probably about 80 percent music, uh, celebrity related. People always love that shit. I, I, I understand that. But then probably about another 20 percent was just life stuff um, that I've gone through and lived and interesting experiences and so on. So if you want to talk music, dude, you know, you better have a really big cup of coffee because, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, name the band and I got something on them. So it's it's entirely up to you guys. You know, you. one suggestion I'm going to do is I really hope this book goes over well. Just don't call it book the book. <laughs> It's kind of taken. <laughs> book, I was actually, book. Uh, I was in the college because, you know, my, my father, my father passed away when I was pretty young. I was 12 years old. And he used to give me all these sayings when in his last days, because he, he figured I'd be more likely to remember them, you know, and how he liked to conduct himself in life and that sort of stuff. And one of his, his favorites, it's what I wanted to call my book, if I ever get around to it. He always told me, because, you know, never judge a man by, you know, the kind of car that he drives or the house that he lives in or how pretty his wife is or how much money he makes. You know, judge him on what kind of a human being he is and not only how he treats you, but other people. He said, because no matter their material accoutrements, piss in a champagne bottle is still piss. 
And I just mm. always believed in that. And that's what I want to call the book, Pissed in the Champagne Bottle with Still Piss. That's a great title. That's a great working title, I got to tell you. Yeah. I, like, I like to call it putting lipstick on a pig. <laughs> or I could always call a book the book, volume two. <laughs> volume two. <laughs> so you guys know what Ian is basically known for? He's known for a lot of things, but you know what he's known for? He is the guy. He is the DJ that introduced Nirvana to New York. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, if you want to hear the story, I'll give you the, the story. Yeah, let's hear it. Of course and, we did. And first of all, let me do let me preface this and give a disclaimer that it isn't because I have, you know, what they call great ears in the music industry, or hey, you know, I'm the guy that gave you Nirvana. There's no doubt about it. I am the guy that broke Nirvana without question, but it was purely by absolute fucking luck. Um, sorry, excuse my language. Are we allowed to swear in this program? Absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> we've all we've all cursed three times in the 30 seconds that we've been on the air. So okay, ahead. just double checking. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll give you the synopsis of it. Um, I, I used to host for quite a number of years a show called Metal Shop. And Metal Shop was a hard rock, heavy metal program. And uh, What station was that on? That was on NEW. It was on WNEW-FM. Uh, I was going to say, you're, you're like one of those DJs, like in the heyday with Carol Miller and... Oh, Patrick yeah, Carol, Scott Muni, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, working at NEW was just an incredible experience, because for many, many years, it was the 800-pound gorilla of rock radio. I mean, it was literally Mount Olympus. Absolutely. You know, there was every DJ that was on that station was was literally famous, except for me. Now, my dumb ass, and then all these famous DJs that I had long heard of well before I, I even got to NEW, but... What NEW gave me, because I had a, a hard rock and heavy metal background, besides just being a rock DJ, was the show called Metal Shop. So I, I used to host Metal Shop. And obviously, um, you know, being New York City based and having the size of the listenership we had, I and mean, we got every big name imaginable was clamoring to come on this program because, you know, literally one play of the new song from Def Leppard or Judas Priest or whoever was, you know, equal to 50,000 anywhere just because of the size of our audience. It was gigantically popular. And I'm not saying that because of the charming Irish company. I'm saying that because of the, at this time, especially in the early mid 90s, hair metal was still very big. Grunge was about to hit. Uh, so it just had a, an incredibly loyal and dedicated audience, which it still does to this day. So anyway, the, the record guy, uh, the local record guy from uh, the label, which I'm not wrong at the time, I think it was Geffen. Um, came up and he, he was bringing some new singles of, of, the, of the bands. And, and the thing that he wanted to promote was the new song by White Snake. Now, White Snake was obviously a staple on Metal Shop. I've always liked White Snake. I think they have great music. I mean, they were very, very big at the time. You'll remember like Still of the Night and songs like that. That were, sure. you know, Is this love? Here we go again. They had a lot of hits. So he's like, I got the new White Snake. I'm like, awesome. And now keep in mind, this is back when we had CDs, you know? Um, so, we didn't have internet, obviously. This must have been 91 or something, I think. And uh, so he has all these CD singles, and I see this one CD single for this band called Nirvana. Now, you know, Nirvana did have an album before that called Bleach that, you know, right. got played in some college radio, but there was no big hits on it. It didn't go anywhere. Obviously, it was Nevermind that blew this band up, that that's how the public got hit, hit to it. You know, there were some hip college kids that knew Bleach, but the general public had no idea who the fuck Nirvana was. Nor I. So he says, okay, here's a new white snake. And I said, okay, well, what's up with this band? What's up with this Nirvana band? And he goes, well, you know, there, there's somebody that's going to, you know, they're going to be a big priority for the label in about a month. But I thought I'd, you know, just bring it up anyway. And, and, and you know, don't forget, well, here's the new white snake. <laughs> I said, okay, well, what's up with Nirvana? You know, let's, let's give them, you know, let's give them a listen. So I listened to them in the radio industry, what they call in queue, which means off air. 
So I put it in the CD player and there was another song playing priest or whatever it was during the show. This is live during the show. And I listened to it and all I heard was the opening guitar. Da, 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 and you know, I'm like, okay, this is not really going anywhere. And then the drums hit. And then it just fucking exploded the song. So I just, I was almost physically reacted by this song because it was just so gigantic and big and completely different than anything I'd heard. The last time I got a reaction when I was soon to play it on the air to a, a song like that was in Boston. I was the first guy to play Welcome to the Jungle from Guns N' Roses. Again, purely by mistake. And the audience completely flipped out wondering, you know, who's this band? What is the song? So I said to the label guy, I said, okay, you know, we're going to play the White Snake, obviously, but we got to check out, we got to get a reaction on this Nirvana song. It smells like Teen Spirit. So I put it on the air and the phone lines went absolutely insane. And I ended up playing it, I think, two more times during the show, just because people wanted to hear it again. I was the only one that had it, you know? So they're like, God damn, man, play that Nirvana song again. Now it's, it's, it's funny because that song was an incredible experience to debut it by luck. But the thing that really made it interesting was also the song uh, that blew up hair metal and in many ways blew up metal shop because we played a lot of hair metal-ish bands. You know, we would play Rat and Warrant and, and a lot of these kind of pop hard rock bands. Uh, but then when grunge came around, which Nirvana was really kind of at the forefront of, then it wasn't cool anymore. Um, so I just remember getting phone calls from a lot of these hair bands, so to speak, that I'd become friends with. And then saying, Ian, what, what the fuck is going on? You know, nobody, our, our attendance is down, our record sales are down. You know, and I'd say, guys, it's because this whole Seattle sound, because then you started getting bands like you know, Pearl Jam all of a sudden exploded. You know, you know Mother Love Bone, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden was, was huge. So I just wasn't hip anymore to like these bands. And in a closing of this very long-winded story, it was interesting. I got invited to Saturday Night Live. I don't know if you guys remember when Nirvana first played Saturday Night Live. Sure. Yeah. Well, the same record guy uh, said, look, you know, I, I want to bring you to Saturday Night Live to, uh, to see Nirvana, but I'm going to bring you to the rehearsal. That'll be cooler because there's not anybody, anybody in the place. Um, and you can check them out. And, you know, they want to say thanks and whatever for, you know, playing them or being the first round, whatever. So I said, that sounds like a good time. So I went. So they were finishing up, uh, I think it was supposed like Teen Spirit, if I'm not wrong. And there was, you know, a few techs running around the place and some lighting people and sound people fiddling and shit. But otherwise, the, the stage area, there wasn't a lot of people in, in there. And there obviously was no audience. This was during the afternoon. So uh, they, they stopped and the label guy went up to the band members. And I met Chris, who's a bass player. And I met Grohl, who's obviously a very big rock star now on his own. Uh, and Grohl was just typical Grey Bull, Dave Grohl, very, very friendly and kind of like the puppy of the band. Like, hey, man, you know, this is awesome. And then I met Kurt. And he was in the throes, if I'm not wrong, of, of kicking heroin at the time, you know, um, or, or very deep into his addiction. I, I can't remember one or the other, but he was not in good shape at all. He had a cardigan on and just, you know, his hair was all matted and shit. And I'll just never forget shaking his hand, which is something that seems very foreign to us in this day and age, but um, shaking his hand and say, hey, you know, nice to meet you, Kurt. And he's like, yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for playing our record. And I remember I left there after meeting him. It was a pretty brief conversation because he was not in good shape at all. He looked very sick, uh, feeling depressed. You know, it was just the oddest thing. You know, generally when you meet a band or a rock star or something, I've never been one to be like, oh, you know, fawn at them or laugh any harder at their fucking jokes or any of that sort of stuff. I'm like, well, this is pretty cool. This guy's, you know, I, I think it's going to be responsible for a really big new sound that's coming out in music. 
And it was just kind of depressing to meet him because I felt a tremendous amount of sympathy towards him because he was in such a rough place, you know, very much like uh, Lane from Alice in Chains, sure. spending time with him, Scott Weiland from STP. These are guys that were obviously in very, very rough shape. So anyway, that's the Nirvana story. I know it was long-winded, sorry. But. No, no, no. You <laughs> no, know, a- one thing I remember, we had uh, Billy Vera on the show uh, a few months ago. And one of the things, you know, we obviously asked him who's their band and whatever. And he, one, one thing that he said, which I thought, it, it actually blew my mind. He goes, you can listen to music your entire life, but you're never going to appreciate the music you did as you did when you were 13 years old. I agree and that. And that's stuck with me. So then I started going back and I'm realizing that when I was 13, I was the hair metal kid. You know, it was all about Guns N' Roses, you know, Bon Jovi, Skid Row, Warrant, all of that. And I can vividly remember, and I've always been a music fan since, you know, my mother took me to a concert and she was pregnant and I think she saw the Commodores and she goes, as soon as the music started, I was kicking her stomach like crazy. So it's been from the womb that I've been a music fanatic. I could vividly remember being in high school. I was right in the beginning of sophomore year and loving the the hair metal as much as I did. The first time that I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit, it was one of those few moments in my life that I truly always remember. I heard, I, I may have heard it on 104.3, it was definitely on the radio. And I heard that and I said to myself, music is officially changed. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and you know, I have been a Nirvana fan. I mean, I was the kid who was going to Bleaker Bob's on on Bleaker Street in New York and buying every single Nirvana bootleg that was out there when you could buy the bootleg CDs and you know, I still have 60 or 70 live concerts and all the outtakes and the covers and all that stuff. He single-handedly killed hair metal. Oh. I mean, it was but it, the thing that was it was so quick I'm just, so, I'm just going to say that. so Ian. vicious. You know, it was just absolute. I mean, it was the most unfucking cool thing imaginable to be into these bands anymore that you once were. And I, look, I liked, I like a lot of these bands still. You know, I'll get in the car and I'll say, you know what? I just feel for some rat and roll, you know, and I'll put on round and round and it sounds awesome. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the fact remains is that all of a sudden it wasn't cool. And, you know, Sean, as you mentioned, you know, when you're anywhere from 12 to 13 years old, which is when kids generally get into their genre of music that they like and they take it real serious, you know, 12 to 16 years old, it's not only what you're listening to, it's how cool what you're listening to is. And it just was not cool anymore to be into Warrant. No, um, or Warren, Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi, some of they, John's a very smart guy, though. They survived. He's separated sure. himself very oh. much from the... You know, and he, had, oh, he adapted oh, his sound so many times, too. I mean, he's gone yeah. from the hair metal to the pop metal to country, country pop. You know, now he's kind of circling back towards more of a Dylan Springsteen sound, which is horrific, number one. But he, uh, you know, he, he did adapt, and that's why he has longevity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and he, he's just a very bright guy. You know, a good songwriter, bright guy, but really separated himself from that. You know, the bands that survive are a lot of the classic metal bands. You know, like Judas Priest. Even a band like Tesla survived because they're just much more of a kind of a surreal rock band. They weren't. Oh, I love them. You know, there was no hair and, and makeup and, and, and that sort of stuff. You know, the poisons of the world are a very good example. And, and Brett Michaels, I've always found to be one of the nicest guys in rock and roll. So I actually felt for him. And I used to run around with him a lot. Uh, and just, you know, go to strip clubs and goof off and that sort of shit together. Uh, and a very, very pleasant guy. Um, but the, he, he was feeling the same thing. He's like, God damn, man, I've never seen anything like it from, you know, being on top of the world. And then all of a sudden, nobody likes me. He goes, he goes it's almost like I've offended them personally. 
by yeah. for the music that I released. You know, so you, you felt badly for them, but oh, sure. there was no stopping it, you know, and they, and Seattle just kept producing these bands or just even other bands, you know, from other cities. But Seattle was obviously the epicenter, you know, with, with Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and so on and so forth. But then, you know, you had other bands that were coming out like Tool, um, you know, Pumpkins. that had a different sound to them, you right. know, and they're and all of a sudden, you know, talking about hot chicks in your Camaro is not cool anymore, you know, and then. Oh, yeah. And I even felt bad for Poison, too, because, like, I know once that hair metal thing started to, you know, dissipate a little bit, they tried to change their sound, too. Mm-hmm. You know, they put out that Native Tongue record with Richie Kotzen playing instead of CeCe DeVille. And that is a really solid album that just came out at the worst possible time. And, and, you, know, and you nailed it. And that's that's very, very true. You know, I mean, and Sebastian, you know, like Skid Row, um, they were never really a hair metal band. They were marketed that way, I think, when they started with the first album, I Remember You and You've Gone Wild and all that sort of stuff. But if you listen to an album like Slave to the Grind, that's a killer a metal album. I mean, oh, yeah, that yeah absolutely. Heavy, heavy, heavy. So I don't think Sebastian, who I've got quite a number of stories with, um, I don't think he ever wanted to be considered a, a, a hair metal band at all. They, he, that, that wasn't his thing whatsoever. But, so some bands were strategic about it. Some others weren't. You know, they weren't. I mean, if you look at Guns N' Roses, too, like in the Welcome to the Jungle video, Axel has the hair teased up to freaking heaven. You know what I mean? They're the furthest thing from a hair metal band, too. But I guess it has to do with the marketing and trying to fit in with the times and stuff. But I think they killed that really, really quickly. Oh, yeah. Did they ever? But hair metal went down, like you said, uh, Ian, really fast. Like you had bands like Twisted Sister and Rat that were playing arenas, and six months later, they're playing two thousand seat venues, uh-huh. and then uh, having a hard time selling. You know what I mean? That, I, mean re- I mean, when you say fast, I just want people to know how fast it really dissipated from. Now, Anthony, um, coincidentally, your band is Nirvana, right? Yeah, Nirvana is the they're the band that made me want to be a musician um i think it was uh it was that new year's eve concert that they did on mtv i think it was 93 93 yeah that's a great Uh, show and you know i was i was like nine years old at the time so uh i mean the concert's great and i just remember at the end they start smashing all their stuff and i was like that's what i want to be (laughs) what i want to be those guys and, and that, that was why I, because uh, I had been into music, you know, but Nirvana was like, that was the first band that felt like it was mine. You know, like my mom was into music, yeah. uh, like the Ramones and the B-52s and David Bowie and stuff like that. Uh, so I grew up w- with all that kind of stuff. But when I heard Nirvana, I was like, this is, this is mine. And this, yeah, this that's, is a, that's a great do. point because I felt the same way, you know, I, and again, I'm a little bit older than you, but when, you know, Nirvana came out, Everybody loved it. I beat it to death. I really did. And then In Utero came out. And to me, Great you know, you, you take my Telsey, favorite album of all time. Me too. You take Smells Like Teen Spirit out of the equation, you know, as you know, it's one of the greatest rock anthems of all time. In Utero is by far their best album. Yeah. By far. I mean, some of the stuff on that album is just they took they took Nevermind to a different level and they also tweaked some things too and and really found their groove at that at that point. But if when when In Utero came out and Nirvana was as big as they were at that point, I saw them in their last show in New York City. 
and they were playing multiple nights at Roseland. Roseland, yeah. yeah. I snuck into that show. Yeah. But why why were they playing Roseland? Why, were they big enough at the time to play Madison Square Garden or a bigger venue? Or did they just choose the intimacy and just decide to do multiple nights? Oh, I think it was the intimacy without question. And, and you know what I think it was? I think it was definitely, you know, look, Kurt ran the show in that man. Everybody knew that. There's no doubt about that. You know, he ran the show. I think it was his giant fuck you to the corporate world. You know, you know, their management said, guys, you know, you can do three nights at the garden and sell them out. And he's like, I don't want to do that. You know, I, you I, couldn't I, believe that they that they were that big and they're playing Roseland. Like you could stand in the back and it was still really good seats. Say, Well, everyone was standing anyway. Didn't make a difference. And seeing them live and they were a four piece at that time because they had Pat Smears oh, uh, uh, in the band. Um, no, I want to ask you, Ian. So you break Nirvana. Does radio still have the power to break bands? I, I think so. I mean, look, you know, this is the thing that we're dealing with now. It's why working radio, I, I've been, you know, I started radio when I was in high school. Um, so I've been in a very, very interesting. Where did you grow up? Prince Edward Island, Canada, which is kind of like the Rhode ah. Island of Canada. I mean, I, I worked, you know, my first radio station was a little tiny AM radio station playing Helen Ready at three in the morning. That's far. And I was in I was in junior high school, and I was an Iron Maiden fan and Van Halen freak. So you can imagine what it was fucking like for me playing <laughs> I Am Woman at three in the morning on a school night. You know, so I even asked my boss, like, you know, what do I, what do I do? How do I get off of this? And then he says to me, "Get better." And I said, "Well, I'm gonna get better." But anyway, to 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 answer your question, Jeff, um, I think radio definitely, without question, still has that uh, the capability. Here's the difference. This is something I get asked a lot. Is as I mentioned, you know, from when I started radio, this is back in 82, 83, 83, um, to now, I've been part of some of the the, the greatest technology changes in the business. You know, where it was, it was just albums forever. You know, they started out in 45s. I played 45s. You know, I don't even know if you guys know what fucking Of course we know what 45s are. You know, yeah. a little 45. Remember that little thing you had to put in the middle? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thing. You know, lots of guys, you know, where it was a necklace sort of shit. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, then it was LPs. And then when CDs came into play, that was a big deal. Then eventually we went to computers. And then all of a sudden, you know, social media and the internet and Sirius XM and Spotify. And so what you have now is you have an amazing number of outlets for, for people's attention. But it's odd, you know, we've just read a lot of studies and I'm not, not here to defend commercial radio, but it just, people still listen to it a lot. And, and I think what it is, is the localization of it. I don't care where you are. If you grew up with a rock station, you're likely at some point during the week to tune into it. Sure. Uh, you know, like a classic rock station, we're obviously not going to break a lot of bands anymore. When I was at NEW, we broke a lot of bands. I mean, a shitload of bands. NEW was totally responsible for breaking. Where you work now, do you still put a little bit of time aside for new music? Uh, we still do, but it's, it's generally going to be the people that you know. You know, hey, here's a new Tom Petty, you know, you know. Not anymore, obviously. We might play something for this new Wildflowers release that he came out with. It's you know, magical. That okay. whole release is just magical. Oh, I mean, Wildflowers to me is just about as good as it gets. But do yeah. you give? Any, but do you give a new band like the Struts a chance? No, no. But we do have we do have a show on Sunday nights called Out of the Box with a fellow named Jonathan Clark, and he plays all new music. I mean, he'll play everything you know from the Struts to you know to any any number you know some local stuff even here and there. 
but he, he played, you know, the new tool. He'll play a lot of different stuff on that, but that's pretty much the only outlet for it, you know, unless you're an established artist. But there's no doubt about it that a, a radio station like Z100 or so on, that is just, you know, it's a gigantic radio station with still a huge listenership. Sure. It will break new bands. What you do is, what you, do is you, you have more choices now to, to, to go to, because I think when you get stuck in with, Sirius XM or, or a Spotify or Pandora is you're generally listening to the, to the genres that you want to listen to and you can really target, you know, I listen to a lot of different kinds of music. I like blues, I like singers and standards, I like classical, I like Pantera and Motorhead, heavy, heavy metal, all sorts of different stuff. And there seems to be an outlet for that on, on almost every channel. Um, whereas, you know, radio, like a pop station like Z100, they might not be breaking Nirvana in this day and age, but they're definitely playing a lot of new music and they have a lot of influence. There's just, there doesn't seem to be quite as many rock stations around or AOR as they used to be called that mm -hmm. had the availability where, you know, you could hear Gimme Shelter one second and then Smells Like Teen Spirit the next. There's still those stations out there, don't get me wrong, and they're still breaking music, but I think the difference between the two with us and Sirius, and I think Sirius is great. I've got Sirius on my phone, I've got it in my car, I tune in all the time to different channels and that sort of stuff, is the localization. People yeah. like familiarity a lot. So if I meet... Uh, if I go down to Jersey to do a public appearance thing and I meet, uh, you know, Johnny who works for the Edison Township Utility. I said, Johnny, I'm on the air tomorrow between 10 and 3. You know, here's my cell number. Drop me a text or drop me an email. I'm going to give you and your boys a shout out. Awesome. Okay. And then one o'clock, he emails me and, hey, we're all listening, man. I'm like, okay, Johnny, 115 right after the Rolling Stones. I'm going to give you guys a shout out. Let me do it. And he just thinks it's the coolest thing ever. And I'm not saying there's any big deal what I'm doing. The point I'm trying to get at is it's real localization and family sort of stuff. And you can't do that on Sirius. That's why I've never worked for Sirius. I think Sirius is great, but I don't like doing pre-tape radio. I like the live in the moment sort of stuff that you can do. Agreed about the live in the moment. Yeah, you know, that was, this is, I mean, even though I like a lot of the music, I'm not hearing any of it because all I'm doing is going into Sirius and saying, okay, you're coming off you know, Steely Dan reeling in the years and then you're introducing, you know, Led Zeppelin, The Battle of Evermore. And then I might have something interesting to say about the songs, but all I'm doing is the vocal break and then that's it. And then they feed it to a computer and then everything just kind of goes, you know, 24 hours a day. I like the immediacy of radio. I miss a lot of that with now because it's much more corporate. There's no doubt about it. It's big business, you know, gigantic advertising budgets and that sort of stuff. But, you know, it's, it's still a lot of fun and I still get a charge of hitting that mic, you know, being on, uh, on cue in New York City, which is essentially the biggest rock station on the planet. Um, knowing the amount of people that are out there, you know, and, and the immediacy and being able to, if somebody sends a text or an email and by, by saying, Hey, you know, I want to say hi to Sean and, you know, and, and all the guys out in, uh, in, in, you know, Washington township, Long Island, hanging out today in the backyard, drinking some beers, you know, that's the way you do that. You get loyal with radio stations, you know, and, and, and you have that long time audience. I mean, I've been a Q now for 20 years, so it's, been doing this for a while on that station and then 10 and NEW. You know, we had um, one of our, one of our first guests on the show is uh, was a dear friend of mine. He's one of my best friends. His name is Scott evil. He's a DJ at WDHA oh, up sure. in uh, uh, New Jersey. And, you know, he hosted a show called metal mania. Now, obviously because of COVID, you know, it's, it's stopped, you know, it's a smaller station, smaller market than, than you're, than you are, you know, unless you're you know, a great radio station, unless, unless you're, you know, seven minutes away from there, you're not getting the signal. That's the only problem, you know, but uh, like, he, like what you were saying, and I wanted to bring it up and I'm glad you did, you know, it's the familiarity. He would host a show called metal mania. And so it'd be on like 11 o'clock on Friday nights and he would be able to, Hey, you know what? Here's your classic, 
you know, like you said, Motorhead, Overkill, Metallica, Megadeth, Pantera. And he would throw local bands in there or, you know, maybe a band that was really big, like Typo Negative, who had an offshoot band like called Silvertomb. He would play them and bring them in. And it would be great. I mean, I've sat in with him a couple of times watching him do it live. There was no better feeling. And the thing that I would notice, which would be very weird, is like me and him would go to like a record show to go digging for records and stuff like that. And, you know, stand-up comics have an ego. We want to be noticed. We want to be, we want to be the shit, you know, like that. Every time I would go out with him, as soon as he would open his dumb mouth, somebody would say, hey, are you Scott from WDHA? And he'd be like, yeah, man, how are you? And he'd start talking. And I'd be like, yeah, you know, I, I, I played a cruise ship. You know, like I'm, I, I, I did the Borgata, you know, like I'm just, you know, so it's like, it is that familiarity because you do get that loyal local fan base. And it's so important, you know, even in a bigger market like New York, it's, it's gigantic, but in the smaller markets, like even like WSOU, you know, they, they, they were, I mean, they still are the biggest heavy metal station in the country. And, and have been forever, you know, and then, you know, when you get back to the hard rock heavy metal thing, I mean, you're talking the most loyal music fans anywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, you know, you know, country fans are loyal. Are you fucking kidding me? Not remotely close. Yeah, I, mean, I agree. You know, if you're into your band, if you're part of the Kiss Army, you know, the reason why you go to a Kiss show now and you see a guy who's 60 years old and he's got his denim jacket with the goddamn Kiss patches on it. You know, I mean, music has that sort of influence. I mean, Anthony gave a very good example. I thought it was interesting what Anthony said with uh, with Nirvana and smells like Teen Spirit, and when I or just and, you know when 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 Nirvana got a hold of him, so to speak, he goes, "That's when I knew I wanted to be a musician." And I thought that was a very interesting comment he made because it's amazing how music or a song or whatever can change your fucking life. I oh mean, yeah, that's the thing that's really interesting. You know, it's a, it wasn't just like I thought in utero is it was an awesome album, which it is. It's an amazing album, but it's just life altering. I mean, you know, Anthony, what would you have been doing now if you didn't, you know, all of a sudden get their Nirvana bug? You might still be playing guitar, but who knows? You could be doing fucking open heart surgery. I mean, who knows? Yeah, yeah. You what know? well, like before before that? I mean, I was into music and stuff, but I was also like I played little league baseball and stuff. Like I had a lot of interests but once i got into music i was like oh i'm i'm not i'm not really good at sports so i guess i'm just a musician now so it really helped to it solidify me figuring out who who i even was yeah i wanted to be a veterinarian that was my thing you know and i i had quite good grades in high school i needed them in order to go to med school and then you know i got into radio and i said well you know i, I really like this this is this is fun you know and, and i got out of the am station pretty quickly i was very lucky you know i think with a lot of luck a lot of timing and a little bit of talent i moved up quite quick and by the time i was 21 i was working in boston in tv and radio and I, that's that's really young to be in a major market and my whole attitude the entire time was like i'll give this radio thing a try and you know bfd if it doesn't work out i'm still a young guy i can just go to university i'm just starting a little bit later you know, and then, you know, I, I went backstage in the Van Halen 1984 tour and I said, there is no fucking way that I had to study 16 hours a day for the goddamn <laughs> endoplasmic reticulum in fucking med school. You know, when I'm looking at David Lee Roth with the top hat on and six chicks lined up against the wall, all with their shirts off and he's having a big titty contest. I'm like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm sticking with this radio thing. <laughs> And then, you know, by the time after that, I was yeah, at 25. That's when I got hired at NEW. That is pure stroke of luck. 
um, in New York, and I just celebrated. You sent in an audition tape, didn't you? Yeah, it was it was weird because um, that's a that's a weird way of getting a. Well, it, it was. It, you know, I'm a highly superstitious person. I don't know, maybe it's my Irish background, but I really am. You know, a lot of you know, everything happens for a reason, and I really think that the fate can play some pretty interesting games because, you know, WNEWFM in 1989 was just. It, it's it's hard to describe the the power that this radio station had. The DJ was it was it bigger than PLJ at well, the time? Well, it, it was bigger oh, at the time for sure. Yeah, without question. Uh, but PLJ, I remember very stretch. PLJ was the preeminent rock station in in New York for a while. Um, but by the time the late eighties came and through the nineties, it was NEW. I mean, there was, it was, Why did PLJ fall off? And I, I wasn't there at the time. I don't know. I don't know if it was, you know, if all of a sudden they started playing the same music too much. That was, or... the, that was what I was trying to say before. That was always the knock on free FM radio that, you know, they were going to play Skinned Freebird, uh, Zeppelin, uh, Stairway to Heaven, you know, the Kinks Lola, and you're going to hear the same 40 songs over and over again. Well, so, yeah. didn't a lot of the DJs from PLJ go over to? Uh, yeah, we did. If I'm not wrong, we had, I mean, there was a real murderer's row of DJs, people that are well known. Um, I mean, you know, they had uh, Scott Muni, who was the afternoon guy forever. The professor, they called him, I think. Professor, right? yeah. I mean, he's the guy that, you know, rode with the Beatles in the limo from the airport sort of shit. You know, he's good friends with McCartney and all that. Uh, you know, they had Pat St. John, who was on PLJ, if I'm not wrong. He was doing middays. Uh, you had Carol Miller, who was uh, who was doing nights. Um, you know, it was just these very, very well-known people that I was quite familiar with, especially when I was working in Boston, because whenever we had some of those national radio shows like tonight, you know, the debut of the new Def Leppard album and, you know, and then hosted by, you know, Carol Miller out of our studios in New York. It was this big, you know, national feed thing. So I was very, very familiar with these names. So NEW, and I don't even know why they did it, because it was such a huge radio station that I, I was shocked that they didn't have somebody that the program director knew immediately. Uh, Who was the, the program director at the time? A guy named Dave Logan. Okay. Uh, yeah, was, yeah, Dave Logan. Was, I think back in Chicago. So he, he's the guy that I'll be forever indebted to. Um, but uh, it's actually a funny story about how that first happened. So they put out an advertisement, which again, it blows my mind to this day. I'm like, I can't believe it. Where did you see the ad? Like R&R. It's called Radio and Records. It's a trade. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to work in a a uh, r uh, That was my first job, actually, out of college. I used to work for CBS Records. Oh, okay. Uh, so then you, you're well familiar with R&R, yes. which was the Bible. You know, I right. mean, it was a really, really heavy-duty trade magazine. That's what everybody read was R&R. It's a big deal. Get your picture in R&R. &R, all that stuff was a big deal. Uh, so they had a uh, the Help Wanted section. Um so NEW, for some reason, put in this ad saying, you know, you know, WNEW-FM in New York as a, as a rare opening. There's the understatement of the century. Uh, and, you know, looking for a, a part-time swing person is what it's called. So you do a couple of shifts in the weekend. You do a fair amount of fill-in and that sort of shit. So, I mean, they got absolutely, I mean, there was moving trucks of tapes going in front of this radio station. Everybody wanted, I mean, there was any number of full-time DJs in major markets that would have left their job to go to NEW to work part-time. And where were you working at the time? Station called WAAF in Boston, just okay. outside of Boston. Great station. Yeah, good station, you know, rock station, you know, big heritage station. They just recently, in the past year or so, folded. They went under, they got bought out, and they were a rock station forever. And they, you know, the talk about a really fun place to work at in the mid 80s from 85 to 89 so you know i, I see this ad for new and i'm like ah, oh, you know well you know what the hell i might as well just send a tape you know who wouldn't want to work at the biggest station on the planet 
And uh, I sent in a tape and I, I pretty promptly forgot about it. And then about two weeks later, my phone rings and my, my buddies, were, we were pretty infamous for busting each other's balls and playing pranks and shit. And um, then my phone rings and I, I pick up the phone and uh, the guy goes, you know, is this Ian O'Malley? And I said, yes, it is. He goes, hi, it's Dave Logan at WNEWFM in New York. And I thought it was one of my pals. And I just said, oh, yeah, fuck you. And, <laughs> and I think he calls right back again about a minute later. And he says the same thing. And some along the lines of, you know, I this is Dave Logan from NEWFM in New York. And I'm not going to call back a third time. Oh, shit. And then what I quickly realized is I, it, I just, I completely screwed up because I realized I hadn't told any of my buddies that I sent in this tape. It was just kind of like, eh, let me just send it in and see what happens. So he uh, invited me to come down. Um, and I, I did, it was odd. My first radio show at NEW, I walked into the studio. It was like a Saturday night at 10 o'clock. Were you 24 at the time? So yeah, just turned 25. I just turned 25 at that point. How overwhelmed are you at this point? Pretty overwhelmed. You know, what, what it was, I, I was overwhelmed a bit, but I was just young and arrogant and enough to felt that, you know, to feel that I was confident, you know, and I was kind of like, well, look, I got nothing else to lose because even if I don't get the gig, I could say I was in the New York City radio airwaves, even if just for a couple of shows. So I went into the main studio and um, I, I walk in there and there's an engineer and half the thing is taken apart. I'm like, uh, I'm Ian, I'm the, the new guy, I'm here to audition and, you know, isn't this the main studio? And the guy goes, oh, you got to go to the backup, the backup studio. I said, okay, where's that? And he said, it's like on the 83rd floor of the Empire State Building. That's where they had their main backup studio, you know? And it was just, it was a tiny little studio. So I said, okay. And I was, I'd only been in New York City twice, I think. I was really unfamiliar with New York. So I went down to the Empire State Building. It was the first time I was in the Empire State Building. Went up way in one of these super high floors. I can't remember what it was, but way, way the fuck up there. Into this little room where they actually had the backup studio. They had an engineer pushing the buttons for you. But the thing I remember the most was looking out the window uh, when I opened up my mouth for the first time on New York City airwaves and seeing the lights. I can still see it perfectly where I was looking and it was just thousands of lights. And I, I just realized how big, you know, this city was and how many possible listeners were out there. And that's, I think, when it hit me, it was like, holy shit. What time was your first shift? Like Saturday night, 10 o'clock. It wasn't an overnight, oddly enough. Um, so I don't know if he just wanted to throw me to the wolves or, you know, generally you'll put somebody on in the overnight, you know, here, you go on from three in the morning to six in the morning. Cause this way, if you crash and burn, you know, you have a little bit of a less audience. So I don't know if it was like, well, let's put their feet to the fire and see who can cut it. And uh, oddly enough, my, my first song that I introduced on NEW is you got another thing coming by Judas priest. Oh, great song. So did, kind of a song. Did you get, did you get to pick your own music or did they program a feed? Well, no, there was quite a bit of uh, allowing to pick your own music. You know, you, there was cards that we used. So if you didn't like a particular song or whatever, you would, you know, you'd kind of rotate these cards back and forth. So there was a certain amount of, of picking your own music. Yeah. Which made it really, really fun. You know? So it was just that one weekend that I was on there. I think I did two air shifts. And then I, I went back to, to Massachusetts and about two days later, um, Logan called me up and he goes, uh, are you ready to come to New York? I said, damn straight. I'm ready to come to New York. And he goes, well, you're on Saturday night at wow. eight, eight o'clock. So pack your bags. And that was in October of 1989. And, mm. and here I am still here, you know, still doing rock radio. You know, one thing, one thing I wanted to ask, which, you know, I was, I always wanted to ask a, a radio DJ, um, about a certain topic how did you feel like with howard stern and opie and anthony taking up so much time on free terrestrial radio did you have like a like a little bit of a weird beef with with, with the way the talk radio 
uh, phenomenon that blew up in like the late nineties, you know, you know, mid nineties to late nineties, taking yeah. away like your potential time on the air. Not really, you know, because look, you know, the, those guys were all very, very talented. I mean, obviously Howard, I think is the best interviewer in the business. You know, the, you, you can't take that away from Howard, you know, whether you liked his presentation or not of talking to porn stars and all that shit, you know, everybody's got their taste in what they listen to. And frankly, I rarely listened to the guy because I just didn't listen to a lot of morning radio and had nothing to do with Howard or opening Anthony or anybody else that was on. Uh, but there was a certain shift, uh, no doubt about it, with these people that were coming on, they were doing primarily talk. I mean, morning radio for rock radio, you know, you do a few funny bits, you know, time and temperature, let's go to the traffic. And that's what really essentially what people wanted. So it was very, very much a new thing. I mean, you obviously had talk radio and AM radio and stuff. But, you know, the big thing in rock radio for years was don't talk too much. Don't spend too long. People don't want to hear you talk that long. You know, if you're doing a break, you know, you got to be under a minute, you know, get to the point, get the fuck out. Then all of a sudden you had somebody come in and going, I don't know, I got four hours and I'm just talking. But if anything, it goes to show um, not to underestimate the smarts and really in a lot of ways, the brilliance, I think that Stern had or has of keeping an audience engaged for four or five hours, just talking. I mean, that is remarkable to me that they can do that. And then they do it very, very well. You know, Opie and Anthony had their stick, you know, when they were together. And I think Anthony's still doing some stuff. And I think Opie is as well, if I'm not wrong, a series or one of their own channels. It was an entirely different beast. But to me, it didn't bother because they were generally on in, in morning drive or afternoon drive. So it didn't really affect me uh, personally. I just kind of kept plugging along and doing my thing. But there was no doubt about it. It was different. What it was affecting was the other people that were doing mornings. Because these guys are getting very, very big ratings, and radio, you know, and look, radio is driven by ratings. As I tell people, I said, radio is not in the business to play music; it is in the business to play commercials. Yeah. Um, and they'll play fucking Russian polka music if they think that's going to get ten share. You know, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like, ratings, 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 and these guys are getting huge ratings. And you know, look, I'm, you know, I say good for them. I'm still a music guy at heart, so you know, I, I kind of feel bad, like shit. In a morning drive, that's a chance for you know to play some really cool stuff or to maybe break a band or something like that. And that's taken away. Um, but again, the radio station is going to stick with who drives the ratings and Howard Stern obviously had ginormous ratings when he was at K rock and opening and Anthony, um, they had pretty strong ratings too. Uh, I wasn't at NEW at the time when they were there. I just left when they came on. Um, but you know, fortunately I went, you know, right back to rock radio to Q, you know, shortly thereafter. And I've been there for 20 years, you know, 10 years in NEW, 20 in Q. Ian, what role did uh, Van Halen play with you meeting your wife? Uh, well, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting story. Um, it, this would have been back in 08. Yeah, 08. I, I got a pretty a pretty long history with the Van Halen guys. I knew Eddie pretty well. Um, you know, spent a fair amount of time at backstage as another sort of, you know, your typical rock star chicanery short sort of shit that was going on. So I, I've always kind of been the guy that's associated with Van Halen um, in New York radio. What kind of guy? What kind of guy was he to you? Uh, I thought he was very, very sweet. You know, that's that's weird. That's the first word that's come out of my mouth, and I didn't even think about that. He, he was he was he was kind. He was a sweet guy. I, I think Eddie went some very went through some very very rough times with addiction, um, and you know, as we well know, addiction can really change people's personalities. I don't give a fuck how nice you are. You know, you're in the throes of having problems with drugs or alcohol. It can really turn you into a monster. We've all heard it before. Oh, my God, sober, they're an angel. You know, boozing, watch out. Um, so, you know, he, he just certainly had his demons. Um, there's no doubt about it. You know, like Carol Miller is associated with Led Zeppelin. I'm definitely associated with Van Halen. 
Um, and it's just weird how they just kind of kept bouncing in and kind of doing life-changing stuff. Van Halen was one of the reasons why I wanted to get into radio. It's very similar to Anthony. You know, when I first was into Van Halen, I was like, well, how do I meet Van Halen? Well, you got to be a radio DJ or a VJ on MTV. I'm like, okay, that's what I'll do. Um, but yeah, so I got an email. I'll just give the short version of it. I got an email from a woman named Debbie. I was doing my Saturday midday show. And it said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm working on a weekend in my home office and I haven't heard any Van Halen in a while. Can you play some? And I emailed her back like I do anybody who takes time to email. And I said, sure, Debbie. You know, thanks for listening to the show. I'll get some Van Halen on it. So it just is luck would have it. I had danced the night away coming up. Um, and so I played Dance the Night Away. And I even think, I think I said, hey, there you go, Debbie. Hope you're having a good time working today in Midtown Manhattan. And then she emailed me back and said, hey, I wanted to thank you so much for playing the, the, the Van Halen for me. I'm really excited. I'm going to their last gig in Quebec City and on, on this tour, because this is when they did the, you know, reunited with Roth in 07. So it's towards the end of this tour. And uh, so I wrote her back and I said, wow, you know, well, well good for you. But actually, Quebec City is not the last gig. It's in, in Grand Rapids in Michigan. So she writes me back and goes, well, no, actually, it's, um, it's in Quebec City. <laughs> That's the last gig. I'll never forget it. Obviously, it's changed my life, married with two kids now. Um, and so I, I wrote her back again and said, no, it's actually in Grand Rapids. And so finally, I called up somebody in the Van Halen camp. I said, you guys had a Quebec City <laughs> And they go, yeah, we just did. <laughs> you know, there's like the first, you know, number 10,462 times my wife is right. Um, so I, she just wasn't my wife yet. Uh, so anyway, it started a very long um, email relationship for about three months, you know, and I always had a, a rule of never dating listeners because I thought it was fucking cheesy. And especially when the internet age came around, it was pretty tempting because, you know, you get some females that say, oh, you know, I always enjoyed your show or I like your voice. And, you know, here's a picture with me, you know, in a bikini with a German shepherd. Well, that's pretty fucking interesting. You know, and I still said, don't go there. Don't go there. You know, the old play Misty for me sort of shit. Um, but, you know, Debbie and I corresponded. And the email started getting longer and longer. And we just had a lot in common. We had a love of Van Halen. We had kind of the same politics, so to speak, or the way we go about life and treat people and that stuff. And finally, I said to her, I said, hey, Deb, you know, what do you say we just go out and have lunch? You know, at the worst comes the worst, I figured I would have a good friend. You know, I knew I'd be friends with her. And a year later, we were married. Um, wow. wow. And now That's we great. got two kids and a dog and living in Connecticut. So here, here's a little addendum to the story, uh, speaking of which Van Halen. Um, there's a, I was trying to think of what to get her for a, um, for a wedding present. You know, she got me a really lovely watch. And I'm like, well, I better fucking think of something here that's, you know, original, you know, instead of, you know, here's a gift certificate. And uh, so I contacted, I actually contacted Eddie's wife, Janie. I said, Janie, I need something. She said, what do you need? And then I'm like, all well, what I need is an autographed guitar from Eddie to Debbie. And she's like, okay, you know, send one of his guitars, you know, and I'll get him to take care of it. And he did. So I've got a guitar here. I can actually show it to you if you want. Yeah, we'd love to play it. Do what I'm talking about. Oh. See, Anthony, this is what happens when you come on this show. Well, here's a guitar. Uh, look at this. So uh, there is Eddie's signature. Hold on, am I right? Yeah, yeah we it, see it that. It says, to Ian and Debbie, dance the night away on 10309, Eddie. Um, so what a was, great gift. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so that's, but she, she's still pissed to this day. She calls it my guitar because, you know, as I said, just sign it to Debbie. You know, write whatever you want, and I thought it was nice to do the personal touch of dance the night away because he knew, or Janie and him knew that. that you was didn't ask him to write that; he wrote that on his yeah, own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, wrote dance the night away. 
That's great. Uh, wow. Well, because I mentioned, you know, I said it was Dance the Night Away. I'll never listen to that song the same. It's the song I walked into my wedding. You know, when they do the, would you please welcome Mr. and Mrs. Eno Malley? It was Dance the Night Away that was playing when we walked into the reception. That's cool. Mine what was mine was the intro to the Godfather theme, which had a which had a radio scratch. You're so and hold 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 on, hold on. Oh my god! It was the Godfather theme that, and then a radio a, a record scratch and right into Walk by Pantera. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I I I I switched up the audio. I cut it up all myself. And so it was like all the Italian people that were at the wedding were like, this is the greatest thing ever. You know, and then they hear this horrible radio, this horrible record scratch. And then all my friends lost their shit because now we're walking out to walk by Pantera. <laughs> so, so all your buddies recognized it was Pantera immediately. I'm oh, sure. God. Yeah. A bunch of metalheads wearing suits for the first time in their life. I you have, a, you have a good wife. Yeah, so give, me, give me a minute. My wife would never put up with that. She picked from. it. Here's, here's a, a funny and quick Pantera story. So um, I'm close buddies for a long time with a band called Extreme. I met them, Love them. Oh, of course. in Boston. Um, so I've been really close buddies with them forever. I just you saw them last year at the uh, Milford, Connecticut Oyster Festival. I was at that. So it wasn't. It was the hottest day in yeah. twenty years. I melted because I'm so fat and old and 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 white. But they were just off the charts. I thought it was your typical kick-ass extreme show, and I hadn't seen them in quite some time. So I just don't have the time to travel and that stuff, you know. So I heard they were coming there, and I called up Gary and said, "Hey, you're coming to my part of town." I was like, "Dude, come you know, come to the show, come to the show." I haven't seen you forever. So we went, and we had a great time. So they went. This would have been back in. I'm guessing 93 because Extreme had come out with an album called Three Sides of Every Story. Uh, so they record. got invited to do some uh, tour dates with Aerosmith in Europe. So Gary and Nuno said, hey, man, you know, do you want to, to come on some of these dates in Europe? And I'm like, fucking Aerosmith and Extreme in Europe? You know, all expenses paid? I'm all over that, you know, to be on the tour bus and stay in hotels. and They take care of everything. So we went, but the first gig they played uh, was a show that it was the original Monsters of Rock. And they had it at a place called Castle Donington, Donington Raceway. Oh, I yeah. think they call it now the Download Festival, if yep. I'm not sure. Um, but back That's then- because they bring a bunch of older bands on as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Monsters of Rock was the sure. biggest metal weekend sure. of all time. I mean, it was just- Do you remember they used to put out albums like that, Sean? Oh, they, yeah, every absolutely. year they put out a new Monsters of Rock album. Oh yeah, it was just, and they'd have this you know insane lineup of these killer bands, and it was it was you know the British rock fans are just they're just absolutely rabid. So it was. I remember arriving at the site, and I'd never been to Monsters of Rock before, so I was really stoked for this. And you know, and a lot of the bands I really liked, besides Aerosmith and Extreme, that were that were on the lineup. So Nuno said to me, "Hey man, you know we had all access passes, obviously all access, and let's go check out the crowd." And um, so I said, okay, let's go. And nobody else wanted to go. Everybody else wanted to have beers and just kind of hang out. So Nuno and I walked down. We went to the side of the stage. And I think Sepultura was on stage at the time. And I had never seen anything like it in my life. It was 100,000 people. There was like, it was like out of fucking Braveheart or Quest for Fire. It was like <laughs> campfires and shit. And what they do is they bring these big jugs of beer. And then when they emptied them, they'd all piss in them. 
and then they would take them and they would throw them in the air so there'd be these spinning <laughs> chugs all over the place it was fucking crazy and nuno who's a, you, know, you know your typical guitar genius diminutive kind of you know <laughs> you know freaked out guy i was looking at him and he absolutely had a look of unmitigated fucking terror on his face. <laughs> never seen anything like this. I'm like, don't worry, Nunes, it'll be okay. They love you here. It's gonna be fucking awesome. Like, oh, man. And so we go back to uh, we go back to the trailer, and uh, the next band um, that was on at the time was Pantera. But we had something going on in the trailers. So I wanted to catch some of Pantera's set, and I think I saw them maybe the first couple of songs, and then they did the rest of the thing. I went back. Well, anyway, we ran out of beer. And so the guys in the in their, our trailer, and, and it was uh, they were doing a warm up. Extreme had this little kind of band set up thing, and they said, "Hey, Steven's here. Tyler's there." And then he's singing "Train Caparillo" through the window while Extreme's playing. It was just fucking magical for a young guy that age. It was just you know, I was it was just blowing my goddamn mind. But we ran out of beer, and somebody goes, "Come on, O'Malley. If anybody could sniff out some beer, um, you can find us some fucking beer." So I said, "Okay." And it was like a little pod with all the band's trailers. There's probably about eight trailers in this like octagon sort of thing, you know, and like a grassy sitting area in the middle, but it was quite big. So I just went to a trailer across the way, just opened up the door, knock, knock, opened up the door and figured if there's somebody in there and whatever band it was like, hey, you guys got any beers? And it was empty. So I'm like, well, the game's empty. And I looked, I see this cooler. And I opened up the cooler and it's filled with my absolute all-time favorite beer, which is called Samuel Smith's Nut Brown Ale. And it was just like, I can't fucking believe it. Of all things, look at this. So, of course, what I did is I picked up the entire cooler oh, shit. and walked out of this trailer and you looked around and sneaked, you know, like fucking twinkle toes across the pod into Extreme's pod. And I'm like, dudes, check this out. They're like, you fucking are the best. So we're like, you know, drinking, drinking, Extreme's playing. We're getting fucking hammered. It's three in the afternoon. And then about... 20, 25 minutes later, I hear this absolute guttural scream from outside of just rage and anger. And all this person is saying is, where's my fucking beer? And, but louder and louder and just like they're about to murder somebody. Where's my fucking beer? Scream and I take the curtain and we look and it's Phil Anselmo. Yeah. <laughs> It was his fucking beer, and he wasn't having it that somebody stole the beer. And I actually ended up telling him a few years later, I said, do you remember being a Donington and somebody stealing your beer? He's like, yeah. And I said, that was me. He's like, motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and we went back out. The ending of this story with Donington, which another thing I'll remember. Um, they, so Extreme goes to play. They were number two in the bill. Aerosmith was number one. And so, like, okay, guys, you know, it's fucking showtime. So we went, they, they were super well received. Extreme was gigantically popular in England and they still are. Um, you know, they'll still play an arena if they go there and play. Um, so Gary says to me, hey man, you know, why don't you just sit in like the side of the drum riser? You know, like, well, that'll be pretty cool watching the show, you know? So I said, okay. So I'm sitting on the side of the drum riser, you know, and you know, the band is fucking playing. I'm not like right in the front of the middle of it because people would be like, who's this asshole sitting in the middle? But I'm right in the side, you know, a little bit out of views away, but I could get a full view of the band playing and the crowd and all that shit. And Gary is kind of, Gary's a very, you know, you, you can attest to this, Sean. He's all over the goddamn place. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he's a fucking jumping bean when he's, when he's playing live. He's a, he's a really great performer. And uh, so he's, but he's doing this kind of funny dance. It's not like typical. So Nuno goes into a guitar solo and Gary literally, well, he walks over and I kind of go like this and he walks over and he leans in. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? What's up with this weird leg movement that you're doing? And he just screams in my ear. He goes, there's a giant shit 
right next to my microphone stand. <laughs> Somebody somehow threw a dump up on the stage because I'm just trying to fucking avoid stepping in this goddamn thing. You know, and that was that was Donington, you know, in a nutshell. You know, that's great. You know, it's it's so weird what goes on at these festivals, you know, because I'm a huge festival person. And I flew out to uh San Bernardino, California years ago for Knot Fest, which was the Slipknot Festival. And they broke it up into two nights. Like the first night was classic, where they had like the old schooler guys like the Danzigs and Testament, Overkill, and Slipknot oh, yeah. headlined. And then the next night was kind of like the new school where Slipknot headlined, but it was Volbeat and Clutch and things like that. And one of the things they were promoting was, hey, we're going to have 55 gallon drums of flaming camel shit. And what did that entail? Uh, I was pretty fucking specific, Ian. They filled up. <laughs> fucking drums full of shit and they were burning them all over this place now i don't know if you've ever been to this this amphitheater it's it is one of the most magical places i've ever seen a show where was it which one it's called it's what's called it was called the glen allen uh amphitheater so now it's i forgot what the name of it's now but it's in san bernardino california so you basically take a huge amphitheater just like uh like a red rock but it's surrounded by the red mountains of like you know, the freaking Mojave Desert. It is just a magical, magical place to see a show. You can watch this show and smell horse shit being burned. Why would, why would you want to do this? I don't know, because Slipknot's a little twisted in the head to begin with, but that was like one of the big things on the poster. Now, I'm going to see these bands. Wait, they I advertise love. we're going to burn horse shit? They advertise they're going to burn camel shit. This is what I'm talking about. This is what goes on at these festivals. It is the greatest experience you, of your life, you but you might get Ebola. Supply concept. They're not promoting with burning camel shit. No, they're sponsored by Geritol. That's a very, very different concert. <laughs> well, I, I'm, just, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm shocked they were even allowed to have that lineup in there. Lots of times, those, those venues that I, I mean, was thinking the same thing. Those festivals, man, I'm telling you one thing. It, it's remarkable if you ever get a chance to see what the place looks like the next morning. Or oh, God. Well, yeah, because it was a two-day festival. And so we came back, and let me tell you, that shit was tore up. Absolutely yeah, tore and, up. And Slipknot, too. I mean, you know, the band with two that. Two nights. Of, you know, was Gore on the bill as well? I don't think they were, but they had, a, I mean, they had four stages. That's how big this place was. I mean, like even this, the second stage was as big as any other stage I've ever seen in my life. And the small stages had like big bands like, you know, Fear Factory and Kill Switch Engage and, oh, wow. you know, Shadows Fall. Bands that were, that were really big. Not that long ago, only if, maybe five years ago, mm. maybe five years ago. But, I, uh, you know, the thing that I remember uh, I went back a couple of years later and see System of a Down play there, which is one of my favorite bands. I love them. It's such such a it's the best live show you're going to see as far as a hard rock metal band in my opinion and we saw them and it took us five and a half hours to get out of the parking lot because you have to uh they don't shuttle you like a lot of the places do so we had to park two miles away in a parking lot we the vip parking was sold out because listen i'm old and i'm fat and i will pay the 40 dollars for premier parking if i have to i have no problem doing that anywhere I do it at PNC all the time. Oh, all the time. It's totally worth it at PNC. It's, but, you know, you don't have to pay for premier parking. All you have to say is, hey, I'm with radio, and they just let you go right in. That's a little secret. Or, um, or you could say, hey, I'm a famous comedian. Well, I am, Jeff. But yeah. anyway. Sean, uh, has, Sean has used that shitty line to get better seats at concerts. I did. I said this. I'll, listen, I'll say it again. I don't listen, give a shit. You, you may be talk about the Irishman all the time. You, I can talk about my story. But you were never, you were never in the Irishman. 
Okay. I can at least I was. <laughs> this is good. This is going to be one of the things we're going to wrap. So what happened was my buddy Scott again works at DHA. He says, "Hey, I got Metallica tickets for you. Awesome. Not going to turn down a free concert. We drink all day." Second to last row in the in the in the place at Giant Stadium in MetLife. So I'm like, "All right, this is kind of shitty, but we're here." You know. <laughs> Excuse me. Volbeat goes on. They're they're killer. I love Danish. Love them. We just had uh, the guitar player on a couple uh, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I, I love Volbeat. I listen to them always. Great, great band. And uh, New York so, guy. Yeah, from the Bronx. So I'm a little. I'm, let's just say I had a few beers or two, Ian. And uh, I'm sitting at the top with a comic friend of mine and uh, Scott's sister-in-law and best friend. So, of course, the girls are like, we have to pee. I'm like, okay, no big deal. We'll walk you down. We'll be gentlemen. We walk downstairs. I have the tickets in my hand. I go, give me your other tickets. They give me the tickets, go to guest services. And they go, what's the matter? I go, "Uh, we kind of need better seats. We're in the second to last row. And she goes, okay, is there a problem? So I look around and I go, I want to really blow this up, but I'm, I'm kind of a pretty famous comic. And uh, this is her birthday, too. And she pulls out her license. And the girl says, are you really funny? I go, I'm damn funny. And she goes, all right, give me a minute. And she walks over. She hands me four tickets. And she goes, happy birthday. Give me some free tickets to a show when, I, when, I, when you're playing. And I look down. She upgraded us to 14th row on the side of the stage. You got to be kidding me. Because, Jeff, this is what happened. These are the perks, Jeffrey, of being a famous, funny comedian. <laughs> Two of those things aren't true. <laughs> All right, it was 13th row. Big deal. But I didn't want to brag. You know what I mean? Speaking of famous, funny comedians, Anthony Kaffer is a famous, funny comedian. Living. What made you move to Denver, dude? You know, okay. So I was on tour last year for pretty much the whole year. And uh, I was in Colorado for like a week, I think, doing shows. And uh, I met my girlfriend in Denver. And so my plan originally was I was going to move to L.A. when the tour was over. Uh, but I moved here, uh, you know, about a year ago, I guess. And, uh, you know, just it was good timing because now nothing is happening anywhere. Uh, but, uh you know, we're gonna see see what happens. I'm here. I'm here in Denver for for now. But uh, hey, let me ask you this question, Anthony. I'm curious. You know, you're talking about being on tour for a year. Yeah. You know, you're, you're obviously going around to different parts of the country. I mean, are you adjusting your set of the stuff that you want to talk about? Like, well, shit, I'm in Georgia, so I definitely don't want to talk about this. Or Washington, I'll talk about this. Or I'm in Texas. Or I'm in fucking Michigan. Or I mean, what do you do? I uh, so I I didn't really change what I do. So so I do like um. I do kind of a combination of music and, and stand up, you know, so I'll do kind of one liner jokes, kind of like Stephen Wright or Mitch Hedberg or, or something like that. And then I do like uh, funny songs. You're and, a lot uh, like Dimitri Martin. Yeah. Dimitri Martin, uh, yeah. Zach Galifianakis with the piano and stuff like that. Uh, and then like a, original uh, comedy songs. And uh, I, I didn't really change the, what I talked about. The only thing I would, I'd maybe change the order sometimes, or, you know, some crowds, you know, the smaller towns are where they're not uh, as hip. Maybe Um, I would have to maybe do more crowd work if they weren't as interested in my material. Um, But I really tried to figure out how to make the same material work everywhere. 
That is such a key, Anthony. And I, I say that all the time. I say I will, you know, I work a lot of casinos, which is very, very different. You know, you have yeah, to be kind of clean and stuff like that. <laughs> but, you know, I say that I, I will, I won't ever change my set to anything. I will do the same set in Greenville, South Carolina, as if I did as if I was booked at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. Yeah. You know, and that makes, you know, that, that shows that your material is good. Your material is solid. If you can relate to anywhere, you know, we're in a, we're in a weird industry. Like, you know, Jeff's a great comic too. You know, I, I bust his balls all the time, but you know, we're in such a weird industry where it's, there's a lot of niche comedy. Like there's, you know, there's a huge influx of Italian comics. You know, some of them are funny. If you're in yeah. a, if you're in a restaurant full of Italians, Hey, my you, grandmother, my grandmother makes chicken cutlets. She takes them out <laughs> from a cleavage. Hey, yeah, exactly. It's all that shit. So like open the Italian, and close with that. That's, oh yeah, that's, exactly. That, that's my that's my opening them. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, you put them in Greenville, South Carolina, and you're gonna it's like a fart in church. It's it's yeah. horrific. You know, so kudos to you, man, because listen, never change your set. Never change your shit. Funny is funny. And um, yeah, I've I've always believed that if, if a joke is solid, it's gonna go over anywhere. Yeah. You want yeah. it right and, universally. And yeah. and oddly enough, uh probably the worst show I ever had in my life was on that tour but it was uh it was in uh what was it jamesport new york or somewhere jamestown james river on the, on the island yeah riverhead riverhead um and it was like i mean i think that i walked probably there so there was probably like 70 or 75 people at the show i think like 35 or 40 people left during my set and i was headlining so i was doing an hour and they they were leaving probably uh i mean i was probably 25 minutes in and people were already starting to leave it's a hard, it's a to, hard feeling man it really oof. is it's, it's gotta be you know i've always had a tremendous amount of uh, of, of respect for you guys and for what you do i don't think I, i'd have the nuts to do it because you know i i often get asked you ever get nervous when you when you when you hit a mic, said, not really. I'm not on long enough. You know, I mean, look, I realize there's you know <laughs> seven hundred thousand people out there. But I've actually said this to people. I said, you know what, the the person you should ask is a stand-up comedian. You know, because you are by your fucking self, and that's it. And even oh, yeah. like, when I even when I MC a show, you know, it's it's always kind of it's it's a loaded audience for me because everybody's stoked to be at the show. So you know, you just gonna walk out there and be just like Jersey, you know, <laughs> you know, Friday night, baby, are you ready to rock? What happened to Ian? Oh, hang on, my oh, hold on a second. My my camera fell down. Sorry, boys. Yeah, uh, that was that's what fell down. I thought it was a little ceramic. Hang on. Yeah, I'm okay. okay. Yeah, the, the camera okay. on top of my. Uh, but anyway, so you know, it, for me, even when I MC shows, you know, and I've been in front of a hundred thousand people, but I'm on there for thirty seconds, forty-five seconds. You know, just warming them up, baby. You ready for Van Halen? Fuck yeah! You know, I get to you're all a bunch of fucking assholes, and they would still be like, yeah. you know, it doesn't matter. But I always had a tremendous amount of respect for you guys that, you know, that can go up there for 45 minutes or even if you're doing a warm up, hey, you got 15, 20 minutes, you know, yeah. and it's just you and that mic. I mean, motherfucker, <laughs> you know, if you're standing in front of a crowd that just does not want to react, I mean, it's got to be a goddamn lonely place. It's there's no be. better feeling in the world and there's no worse feeling in the world. Yeah. It's the only way I, I can describe it. The palm of your hand sort of thing, like when you're, when you're what they call killing it. Oh like, sure, I mean, yeah. there's always days where you know, like you know, your 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 shit is just going, and they're eating up everything. And then there's days where you're doing the same act, and then the, there's people in front of you, and they won't give you shit. 
I've had experiences where I've done an hour that felt 10 minutes and I've had experiences where I've been up there for two minutes. And I said, that was the longest hour of my life. (laughs) You know, it's, it's so, you know, and like, you know, it's so funny. Like you were talking about Riverhead, Long Island. That's a very tough market. It's, you know? Yeah. And that crowd, the, the thing that was so weird about it was they were objectively wrong because they, they turned on me because there were, there were, uh, there's like this big table right in the front and they were talking and stuff. And I was trying to be cool about it because I, you know, I, I know you can lose the audience by trying to be too much of a stickler about making them pay attention. So I'm trying to be cool about it. I'm like chatting with them or whatever, but it was getting to a point where uh, just at one point I was like, Hey, if you guys want to talk, you, you mind just going outside? Cause I'm just trying to do this show here. And then the, this woman was like, yeah, whatever, fuck you. And, and then, so I started getting a little mad and I started kind of, you know, ripping on them a little bit. And I think, uh, I think I was already doing songs at that point because the jokes were, it was, it's like brutal. So I was like, all right, I'll just kind of plow through a bunch of songs. I don't have to talk to them. And uh, I was about to do a song and the guy yelled something out and request, I don't know what it was, Freebird or something. And I was like, fuck you. And I went into the song and then they just, 15 people got up and they started leaving in the middle of the, of the show and right before this one one guy got out uh, out the door he's like i just want to say so now the show has stopped because he's like i just want to say whatever i respect what you guys are doing and then somebody else in the crowd was like you have nothing to apologize for sir you did nothing wrong and then oh, god. 15 oh my god out. And Not I was so mad. Babies. Yeah. So, what, so what, do, what, what do you guys do? I mean, all you know, you obviously all have had a show that went like that, where it just oh, gone, yeah. where you just lost the audience. And it, so, what do you do when you walk off the stage? You know, what do you say to yourself? Like, well, there's just there's the next gig, and I know that this sure. is sure because it's, yeah. it's got to be fucking difficult. Look, you know, we all have healthy egos. We all want to make people laugh and make them smile and be liked. At the end of the day, everybody wants to be liked. I mean, so, so what do you do? What do you say to yourself after a night like that to kind of get your psyche back to where it's got to be? Because if you don't and it gets in your fucking skull, you're in trouble. It you know, does. It, yeah. it, it's there's there's times where you, you have to, if you know you're bombing because it's you, you embrace it. I've learned that. I've learned not to get in my head. And if I yeah. know, like there'll be times where I'm saying, hey, listen, you know what? You're not fucking laughing. You know why? Because I suck right now. And then you could turn them around like that. You know, you have hecklers that can really really affect you I, you know you mentioned long island I, I never forgot this one gig i had a whole weekend out at the big club in, in long island governors and thursday i cracked my tooth i go to the dentist i got a temporary crown put in so then i'm out there saturday and i'm talking to the crowd and there's a lady sitting in the front and she has her feet on the stage now hmm. let me tell you something that to me is the ultimate sign of disrespect because that, that whether it's a gigantic stage like a casino or a fucking pallet that's my work area and I addressed her and I just said, hey, ma'am, would you mind taking your, your feet off the stage? Doesn't say anything. Now she's yapping. She's yapping. And I go, ma'am, look, now you got your feet on the stage and you won't shut up. Can you please do one or the other? I can't handle both. And then she starts really getting obnoxious and the crowd is yelling at her. And as she, they're yelling at her, I feel something in my mouth. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? My temporary crown pops as she's yapping so i go like this 
and I take it out. I go, ma'am, your voice is so fucking bad. You're making my fucking teeth fall out. <laughs> <laughs> and I, to this day, look, we all have great shows. We all have bad shows. I have never heard an eruption like that. <laughs> I mean, it was a four. I actually had to go, guys, all right, enough. My tooth fell out. Knock it off and shut up. Let me finish my set. <laughs> so like you, you have, you have to be able to handle them. And that takes time. That takes a lot of time. Like I, I had one the other night, you know, I had a girl and like, she, I wasn't looking at her. I wasn't looking, I was looking at her direction and, you know, I was having a really good set. And I said, you know, she says to me, all right, motherfucker, stop looking at me. And the place just goes, Ooh. And I go, well, ma'am, you know, I'm not looking at you. I'm just looking in your direction. She, and she gave me the finger. So I'm like, okay, I go, ma'am, do you mind me asking you like what your nationality is? And she goes, you know, my motherfucking nationality. I go, you're Puerto Rican, aren't you? Right. And she goes, yeah. I said, well, I know I'm going to ask you a personal question. Do you, do you want to tell me how old you are? No. I said, well, I'll take a guess. You're about 35, 36. She goes, yeah, exactly. Now the crowd is just on pins and needles at this point. And I go, well, look, you're having a great time. 36-year-old Puerto Rican girl out on a Saturday night. Enjoy your night. But how did you find a babysitter for 17 kids? <laughs> and the place lost it. The, and so I know how to defuse it. I know how to attack them. And I use an expression all the time. Don't bring a chihuahua to fight with a pit bull. Right. Well, yeah, anybody's stupid. I've seen it a number of times. Um, you know, my best buddy or my, the best man at my wedding, too, is a pretty well-known guy in the comedy business. He's a, he's a PR guy. His name is Michael O'Brien. And Michael handles Bill Burr and Saget and Brian Reagan and, and, and all these guys. So we saw Burr one night at Caroline's in New York City. This is, you know, I don't know, three, three years ago, four years ago, a while ago. It was a kind of a special thing he was there in the first place because obviously Burr plays bigger venues now. But I'll remember somebody that did this table in front would say wouldn't stop talking. And he said to them once or twice, like, guys, come on, I, I can't even concentrate what I'm saying. You know, just, just shut up. And they were just young people, probably from Long Island or something, you know, in for the in the city for a night. Holy and then finally he says to me, he goes, you know what? I need you to get the fuck out. And he just stops. And you can feel the crowd go, Oh boy, this is not going to a good place because you can sense his fucking anger. And they everybody just saying to themselves, look, I, I just came here to have a few beers and laugh. You know, this is this is going not to a good place. So they they were at startled of that i want you the fuck out of here is what he what he says um and then he says to them uh i don't mind uncomfortable silences i'll never forget it. he goes i don't mind uncomfortable silences and he just puts his hands on the mic like this with his head and, goes, and waits and then finally they got up and they walked out great you know? so it just, it just it just goes to show but here's a, just a quick question i have for you guys here what i was thinking about this because of michael michael and i were talking about this because he handles, you know, a lot of big names, but he also handles a lot of up and coming guys. I always say, hey, who do you really like? You know, you know I got this new guy. He's fucking great. But I, I was talking, I said, what are your guys doing with this, with this lack of touring? Um, and he goes, it's really, really difficult. He goes, we're doing some shows now where they're doing the social distancing outside and so on. But he goes, and everything is 25% capacity. And I said to him, I said, is it kind of like, and he agreed with me. I said, is, isn't a comedian? I said, they're constantly working on their craft. You know, they're trying out new jokes and stuff to see if it works. And it's like a musician. You're practicing your craft, whether you're playing a fucking guitar or in Anthony's case, you're doing both. And we're practicing your comedy routines. You don't got the audience, you know, just, the, you know, the, the, the you need the laughter of the crowd and that sort of stuff. Is it difficult that you're not 
able to, to go out and do this stuff? And what do you do? You don't have a venue to go to to practice this stuff. You're just kind of doing it with friends and family? No, no. There's, there's a lot. There's still shows being done in New York, New Jersey. It's just weird. You know, uh, during the summer, Sean and I did a couple of outdoor gigs together. There's a bunch of stuff under tents. Uh, I'm doing maybe two, three Zoom shows a week, and I'm getting up... Um, on like these patio shows and these shows in parks, maybe about five times a week. So you're not getting up as much as you normally would, uh, which makes it a little harder to work out mm -hmm. new material. It takes a little bit longer because, you know, you may write a bit and you'll go up, you know, maybe 13 times a week and start to work on a bit. You don't have that luxury of doing that anymore. So it takes a little longer to, to uh, bring along the newest stuff. But there are still opportunities. It's just not as yeah. many. And one, yeah. one thing that, was, that I found was very different. You know, Jeff did say, you know, we do some outdoor shows and I've done them. But if you here's the difference. If you're in a band or even just an acoustic guitar player, you can go outside at a winery and play some songs. People are going to love it. The, the, one of the fundamental things about comedy is four walls. You have to be inside a room because your voice bounces off the walls. The laughter bounces off the walls. It, it's a whole. You also don't want any distractions. Sure. Yeah, we've had them too. You know, like one of the shows that me and Jeb did, we've talked about before. We did a parking lot show where everybody was sitting in their cars. So you're not getting laughter. You're not getting clapping. You're getting car horns. Mm -hmm. So which was so on a different level like of, of, of change, you know, but we have to adapt. I mean, it's an art form and, you know, we can't just be sitting around uh, waiting for something to happen because look, we can have things break open in a week or it could, it could feasibly be six more months. We don't know. Yeah. So like I'm doing shows this weekend at a club that I've worked at for 10 years and I have had some of the greatest shows in my life and I'm terrified because it's 25% capacity and it's a big ass room. So you have 50 people there and if half your audience is not laughing or clapping, you're going to hear it. You're going to hear you know, it. Right? When yeah. you have 200 people in there and a hundred love it, you, you don't recognize the hundred people that aren't laughing or clapping. So you know, it's interesting because, you know, we had a, I'm a, on the board of directors of a charity here where I live in Westport, Connecticut, a homeless charity. And one of our, our big fundraiser every year is a comedy show that we do. And we, you know, generally bring in a pretty big name comedian, sometimes an opener, but you know, somebody that's, you know, relatively well known. And, um, so this year we had, they weren't quite as well known. We had three or four of them, but we did a Zoom thing with them, right? So, and they were, a couple of them were in LA. I think one was in Nashville or something. We had them all feed into this. So there was no audience sound at all. But, you know, oddly enough, I said, boy, this is going to be either, you know, and we, we ended up raising a lot of money. A lot of people tuned into it, but I just thought it was going to be the strangest fucking thing I've ever seen, or I was going to love it. And from what I, what I watched of it, I loved it. I thought it was really great because I'm so used to, especially you know, running around with Michael for years where we were, you know, we weren't at a rock show. We were at a comedy show because it was work, you know, and I, and I love comedy. So I just thought it was great. But it's always, as you said, you know, it's the four walls and feeding off the crowd and that sort of stuff and building them up and bringing them down and building them back up and then killing it at the end. Um, but not hearing any laughter whatsoever after the jokes. And I thought it was great because what I was hearing was my own laughter, the people that yeah. really killed it. I was just sitting there fucking giggling, you know, and they did this and there was absolute dead silence on there and there was no crowd reaction or something, you know, it was very kind of like a, a Mitch Hedberg or a Stephen Wright where, you know, everything's really kind of deadpan because you're not getting that energy and hooting and hollering, yelling and that yeah. stuff at all. So it was all very kind of quiet and very dry. You know, yeah, well, Drew Michaels did a comedy special like that, right, Anthony? Didn't he do uh, I think so. HBO, that Harold uh, Carmichael, you know, uh, it was like you know, a 
did he do something on FaceTime or something? No, no, he did. He did. A, he did a stand-up comedy show with no audience. Yeah, Maria Bamford did one too for only her yeah. parents sitting on the couch. Oh, yeah, yeah, and she did another yeah. one where it was just her with her dogs on oh, her couch. West, Westport. Let me tell you though, Ian, one of my favorite places to perform as the Westport Inn in Connecticut. I've played there uh, probably two dozen times. I did uh, New Year's Eve there. And, oh yeah, and one of my favorite one of my favorite record stores in the world is the Vinyl Street Cafe in uh, Fairfield. Oh no kidding! Oh wow! Okay, so you know that you know this. I know, I know that area like the back of my hand. Yeah. yeah no, it's it, it's a great area. Well, you know, keep in mind that you know Westport started out as an artist community. Sure. Uh, so you know, there's you know, it's obviously it's Fairfield County and all that sort of shit. So you get a fair amount of dough in this area, but it's still at, at its basis. I think you know, it's very much an artist community. So people are very open to, you know, plays, comedy. You know, the music, you know, we've got a, the Levitt Pavilion here, the Playhouse, and we got all these different places, you know, that, that so people are very, very open to it. I, you know, I've, I've really been quite impressed with the events that I've gone to, the people, they're into it, man. They like it. And a Shake Shack. Oh, yeah, and we got a Shake Shack, too. Yeah. So, no, it's a, no, it's, it, it's, a, it's a really, really good place. You know, it's a good place to live. Really Before we uh, wrap this up, uh, one question for each of you. Let me start with uh, Anthony. Okay, so. Anthony, what, what, you're, you're in Denver now. Also, I, I just wanted to add this, but by the way, Anthony and I worked together a ton of times at Greenwich Village Comedy Club. When he'd go up with his guitar and do his one-liners, he was unfollowable. You can, no one wanted to follow this guy. He crushed more, harder than anyone I've ever seen. He, he was absolutely amazing. But what made you want to leave the New York comedy scene? Because this is where comedy is, and you just like hit the road, and now you're relocated in Denver. Yeah, well, I mean, I I went on tour really because I had to. I uh, it, it's hard to make a living. I, I was, you know, kind of squeaking by the last couple of years that I was in New York, but um, but you know, I was always just really not making uh, enough money. So so I went on on tour and I was getting paid a, l- a little better, and uh, you know, I just who'd you go out with? Uh, it was me and Daniel Crow. He was, uh, sure, he was, he was opening. And, uh, and, uh, so it, it really was, you know, it was just mainly that, uh, I didn't necessarily want to come back after the tour because I, I just couldn't really think about struggling the same way after, you know, doing an hour every night and then getting paid and, you know, traveling and see, seeing the country or whatever, just coming back and just doing the same rooms, uh, you know, for less money. And then just, I just wanted to see if I could do something else somewhere else. And, and you know, you I, I don't comment. know if you I opened up a room out there, right? I did, but uh, I'm not doing it anymore. That's a whole other, that's a whole Denver, other. Denver's got a great scene with that comedy works club out there too, though. Comedy works is great. Um, I, I don't, I mean, it's weird because here all the comics talk about the scene like it's the best scene that there is and I, i'm not buying it uh you know there's nothing better than new york as far new as york anything is whether it's yeah. whether it's comedy whether it's theater whether it's radio whether it's music art museums there's nothing is better than new york city and i will say that to the day yeah, and one yeah, day we'll be back Rosalind, Ian, one more question for you mm-hmm. before we wrap this up you have a great voice okay obviously have you done any type of voiceover work? Oh, that's been my primary source of income for years. I mean, as of now, I got I got involved in real estate actually a few years ago and have been quite successful in it, which has been nice. 
uh, just because the, the, the voiceover industry got so diluted. What happened, what, what really hurt the voiceover industry was the amount of celebrities that got involved because they found out it was easy money. So, you know, I, I can watch TV and watch one break of commercials and out of the five or six commercials, four of the celebrity voices I can recognize. I go, oh, yeah, oh, there's, there's John Hamm, Mercedes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's James Spader, you know, Honda, you know, or Budweiser, or John Cusack doing this. Um, yeah, so you know, when I first came to New York, that was my voiceovers were my main source of income from 89 to, to 09. Um, and then I moved to Connecticut and I still do, I still have a studio here and I still do voiceovers. Uh, but it's just not my primary thing now. Um, you know, radio and real estate are, are, have taken over as my, as my two primaries. But, you know, still book gigs and, you know, I've done a lot of national campaigns. I was the voice of Saab Cars for years. Gotcha. Um, uh, yeah, they had a campaign called Born from Jets, which was a pretty cool commercial. The commercial won a lot of awards, not because of the voice, because of the, the, the visuals. Um, yeah, so still doing quite a bit of voiceover stuff, and um, and you know, just radio and real estate is the primary thing. Yeah, I got a friend of mine who lives in California who that's his main source of income. He's like the guy who does the pistachio commercials. Well, that's you know, that's all you need is you know, you need one small gig, and I'll give you the, the greatest for instance of all time was I was the voice of Arm and Hammer for oh god, like eight years. And the thing about Arm and Hammer was the, the commercials were kind of had, they were kind of geared towards housewives. They were kind of slightly cheesy. You'd rarely see them in prime time. We saw them all the time during the day. Who but, wrote the copy? Was it be, would it be ad guys or would they let you interject? No, no, I wouldn't do anything. No, it was always the ad guys, you know, give me the copy, put me in the booth and tell me what you want. You know, but I did an Arm and Hammer toothpaste commercial. Um, and that one commercial ran for four or five years. They didn't even change it. And, you know, and keep in mind, as you probably know, it's all residuals. You don't get paid for doing the gig of the actual voiceover. You get paid for how many times it plays. So every time it's on, you're getting paid. And they used to run the shit out of these commercials. So, you know, even though it wasn't a really glamorous gig by being the voice of Arm & Hammer Toothpaste, you know, the guys that had the glamorous gig of the Mercedes commercial that was running, you know, maybe once or twice a day nationally, you know, mine was running 40 or 50. Um, so I made just gads of fucking money off these most ridiculous spots. So I've never really cared about what the product is. I mean, it's kind of cool when you're on Saab and you do the Born from Jets and it's winning awards and you know, you can, you're watching it on prime time and shit. That's great. But at the end of the day, it's like, well, fuck, what's going to get played more? But you know, celebrities have definitely been the bane of our existence. There's no doubt about it. I mean, they've just come in and just wiped everything out for the, for the regular voiceover guys, for sure. I'm just people go on can record. find you now. I'm sorry. And people can find you now on Q104. Uh, Q104.3. I do every other uh, I do every other Saturday night and uh, every Sunday midday, seven to midnight. I used to do Saturday middays, but then I, you know, I got kids now and they have sports and shit. So I want to keep my days free. So I flipped to seven, seven to midnight. But my main shift that I've always been on is Sunday middays from 10 in the morning to three in the afternoon. Okay. And, Anthony, and, where, and where can people find you now? uh online you mean like yes. uh yeah your information we're wrapping uh, it up yeah uh, uh at anthony kapfer uh on all social media uh i have a podcast called is this anything it's uh me and a couple of uh new york comics uh yeah, working on new my jokes dopey again. friend brett druck is on that brett druck rob ryan Jarrett berenstein i love those guys yeah. Brett is one of the greatest writers of our generation on facebook i will tell you that oh I he's love, great i love brett druck i'm yeah. surprised it wasn't called podcast the podcast of that, actually, me and Rob and Ryan. That's had the an way idea. to end it. That's the way to end it. There we go. And Sean Morton, my my, my co-host, is going to be at Bananas this week. Bananas this weekend, Hasbro Heights. Next weekend, Comedy Zone, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I will go on record and say this is what episode thirty-nine, something around there. Uh, 
pro- as far as music goes, my favorite episode so far. Oh, but listen, we, we had far. we had two great uh, guests. Uh, we love the stories. And we, guys, we really appreciate you taking out a, a little time out of your day to talk to us. Oh, this is great fun. No, you yeah. got, I learned a lot from you guys about the comedy stuff. I'm very, very interested. As I said, I've, I've always had a tremendous amount of, and I'm not sitting there trying to blow wind up your skirt, but you know, I've always had a tremendous amount of respect for guys that can get up there and entertain, and it's just you and a microphone. I mean, that takes some fucking balls. I wouldn't have a ball suit. A lot of people, have you ever thought about doing stand-up comedy? I'm like, you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm not that I'm not that brave. Uh, so, you know, good for you guys. And hopefully I'll, I'll see, you know, one of you, if you come to this area, it's obviously a little bit more, more difficult, but, you know, if you do find yourself in the city or something like that, um, you know, let me know, you know, and that would be really fun to, to come to one of your gigs, you know, and especially obviously when things kind of get back to some sense of normalcy, you know? Sure. And, and, and listen, We'd if you're interested, have I have no problem throwing Jeff off this podcast if you want to do this with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you know, if you ever want to do it again, let me know. They say, because I've got about a hundred fucking Josh you have an open invitation that you would not believe if you ever decided to go back to the music end of things i guess some pretty funny stuff in the arsenal so yeah whenever you're ready let me know and otherwise you know it's been a real pleasure guys awesome thank, thank you, you so much guys listen everybody um we switched over platforms so people who are listening if you could resubscribe and continue to share that would really help us out a lot um otherwise you know, take care, everybody. We have a great, great show. Oh, uh, yeah. Can I tell them? Can I tell them? Go ahead, John. You're, you're okay. so excited for this. So Go right ahead. I, I stumbled on a, 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 a musician on Facebook, and I was blown away. Her name is Mar- Mariah Formica. Uh, old, 24, a voice like uh, Ann, Wilson. Ann Wilson, and plays guitar like Eddie Van Halen. So she is amazing. And also on the show next week, Ricky Rocket from Poison. Oh, no way. Ricky's going to be on. Yeah. It's going to be a great episode of New School versus Old School. So I can't wait for that. Oh, you'll have a good time, Ricky. That's great. Awesome. Good for you guys. All right, everybody. That's it for Who's Your Bitch. Thank you again, uh, guys, and take care. Bye. See See you later. Bye.